You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. And now we come to the Gospel of Mark, which really fundamentally answers two questions. What does it mean? Who is Jesus? And what does it mean uh, to follow Jesus? But, but before we do that, I want you to imagine hearing the Gospel of Mark for the first time. I, I celebrate in October. On October 14th, I became a believer um, when I was 14 years old. And so 21 years ago, um, <clears throat> I became uh, a follower of Christ uh, here in just about uh, two weeks. And uh, I, I've been thinking about that because it would be like me becoming a believer um, and then say today being the first day that I heard the gospel of Mark. So think about, think about becoming a believer in the city of Rome. Think uh, your name is Rufus. Uh, Rufus is one of the believers mentioned at the end of the book of Romans and is actually mentioned in the gospel of Mark because his father, Simon the Cyrene, helped carry the cross uh, of Jesus on his way to Golgotha. And uh, say you're Rufus and you come to faith in Christ, perhaps through the testimony of some believers who had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, to celebrate the Passover, and had come back and had told you what they had seen. The most amazing thing they had seen as they went to, to Jerusalem to, to worship, just like they had for years longing for the Messiah to come, that they, they not only had, uh, had heard about Jesus, but they had heard declared by the Apostle Peter that Christ not only had died, but he had risen from the dead, um, and that the fulfillment of the Scriptures had come true in Jesus, and that forgiveness of sins and eternal life could be found in Jesus. And those believers took that word back to Rome. We don't know fully how the church at Rome was started, but most likely it was from some believers who had, Jewish believers who had come to faith in Christ and had traveled back from Jerusalem to Rome and had been influenced by uh, later on the Apostle Peter and then later on the Apostle Paul. And uh, there were some other believers that were there. Their names were Priscilla and Aquila. And in their house, they began to, to meet as a church. And Rufus invites you to go to church at Priscilla and Aquila's house. And you begin hearing this good news about Jesus and you become a follower of Christ. And up to this point, you just read the Old Testament scriptures and you recalled the teaching of Peter and how Peter told us that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So you, you read with eager anticipation to understand what it meant to follow Christ and to obey him and to, to worship God. And when you would gather as a church, you would sing songs and you would hear from the scriptures. And perhaps you would, you would hear from someone who had heard from Peter's teaching or maybe word was beginning to circulate the stories concerning Jesus' parables or, or his teaching or his miracles, the things that he had done. Uh, there was this sense of eagerness and anticipation, but also longing to know more about Jesus. Just imagine yourself being a believer for 20 years and not yet having a gospel to read. And in the midst of this time, uh, one Sunday, you show up at church at Priscilla and Aquila's house, and there's someone there to read this book called the Evangelion Kata Markon, the gospel according to Mark. And, and there in that church service, as if nothing else mattered in life, for an hour, somebody stood and read the gospel for the first time. Just put yourself in that situation. We just heard Mark 1, 1 through 8. But that's, that's what must have happened. Those believers perhaps had heard about John Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark, because Mark was a close associate with the Apostle Peter. And at some point after A.D. 42, when uh, Peter leaves Jerusalem because of persecution in Jerusalem, somewhere between 42 uh, A.D. and 64 to 5 A.D., when Peter is martyred uh, under Nero in Rome, most likely Peter comes to Rome and is ministering there and teaching and instructing in the gospel, encouraging believers and sharing the gospel. And, and Mark uh, uh, was one of his associates, and we will look at this in a minute, but Mark uh, is known to have compiled uh, this gospel largely from the testimony of Peter. Um, and, and Mark has put this gospel together to help us understand the record of the life and teaching of Jesus. 
That's, that's the gospel of Mark and what we're, we're studying today. And uh, to kind of give you some of the foundational elements of the gospel of Mark, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, when we, the book's name itself, uh, though Mark is the author and is the title of the book, it's really not about Mark. Uh, in fact, you hear very little of Mark's voice. Uh, in the gospel. It's really the good news about Jesus, but uh, we know that there are four different gospel accounts that we have in the scriptures, and each of them bear their uh, author's name. Um, and, uh, and in the case of Mark, he's not an apostle like Matthew, um, but he's a close associate um, of, of Paul as well as Peter. Uh, he, in fact, is the cousin of Barnabas. If you uh, know some of the history in the book of Acts, Barnabas is a, uh, a key figure in the early church. And Barnabas and Paul team up to go on the first uh, missionary journey in the book of Acts. And they go on this missionary journey and they take John Mark along with them. Later on, there would be somewhat of a, an issue of uh, falling out between Paul and Mark because Mark kind of left off the journey uh, before it was over and Paul didn't want to take him again. And so Paul and Silas go one way and Barnabas is like, well, I guess you're my cousin, so you got to go with me. And Barnabas and Mark go the other way. Um, and in God's grace, we find out later that Paul and Mark end up being reconciled because Paul says, uh, at the end of Second Timothy to, to bring John Mark because he is useful to him. And, and so uh, we, we get a little bit of information uh, about Mark in the, in the scriptures. Um, and, uh, and we know that though the book itself is technically anonymous, if you read through the, uh, the content of the gospel, there is no indication uh, at a point in which Mark identifies himself as the author. Technically, all of the gospel accounts are anonymous. Uh, however, early on in their circulation, uh, often appended at the top of the manuscripts was this statement, kata, whoever the art, uh, author was, according to Mark in this case, according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to John. Um, and from church history, we know uh, that Mark was uh, early on identified as the author uh, of this gospel. Uh, Papias, who is one of the church early church fathers in the first century, uh, so just within 50, 60 years of when Mark most likely was written, it's recorded in Eusebius's church history that Mark, uh, having become an interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard nor followed the Lord, but afterwards um, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses. But Mark, in compiling these things, Papias said, committed no error while thus these things were written as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard and not to state any of them falsely. Uh, and in fact, we, we see that Mark often has insight uh, into things that most likely could have only come from someone like Peter. Um, uh, in terms of the details of Jesus being asleep in the boat at a certain place and, and how that took place. And uh, if you go to Acts chapter 10, which is uh, Peter when he proclaims the gospel to Cornelius, uh, and so at an interesting point uh, in Acts chapter 10, as he explains the gospel, uh, he does so in a way that sounds very familiar to the outline and the structure of the gospel of Mark. Uh, it says in Acts 10 verse 34 that Peter um, uh, stood up, verse 36, um, uh, he, he, he says he proclaims this good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, uh, which is very similar to the opening of Mark 1.1. 1, 1. And then he says in verse 37, you know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are eyewitnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. And God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify uh, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. See, Peter's preaching 
uh, is in many ways very similar to the structure and outline of the Gospel of Mark, beginning with this statement of Jesus being uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, Lord, uh, going into the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus and the descending of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' ministry in Galilee and the Judean countryside, all the way to the cross and to the resurrection. And so uh, we see that Mark is the author of the gospel. And most likely Mark wrote uh, the gospel somewhere between the mid-50s to the early 60s in the first century. So the content of the gospel of Mark is believed uh, to be the first uh, recorded gospel, though uh, the, the gospel of Mark, just like all the other gospels, are based likely both on oral and written um, uh, testimony or documents that, that, that were circulating at that time to, uh, to teach early believers the instruction of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the deeds of Christ, the works of Christ. And um, we know that it's most likely between the mid-50s and early 60s based on uh, the Papias' testimony that Mark was writing at the testimony of Peter. Peter is martyred um, under Nero in the early 60s. Um, and, and most likely it was either around that time or shortly thereafter that Mark compiles the account of the gospel and it begins uh, to circulate. Uh, and it seems as if towards the end of Peter's life he had been in Rome for some time because in 1 Peter, when Peter writes uh, to the believers, he says he gives greetings from Babylon, which is another name for Rome. And, and Mark is there with him. Um, and so uh, most likely it's in this time, the first gospel written and based on, if you're into this, the other gospels, most likely Matthew and Luke are written shortly after and probably had knowledge of the gospel of Mark. Um, and Mark is the shortest and Matthew and Luke uh, Matthew, being an apostle himself, has a much more expanded gospel. Luke uh, tells us that he was very particular, a doctor type that was very into details, went to great lengths uh, to, to kind of collect sources and eyewitness testimonies to put together an account of Christ, probably uh, as a part of Paul's ministry because he was a close associate of Paul. Um, and then John's kind of a little different uh, on its own island somewhat because it's written later in the ni early 90s A.D., uh, at the very end of the Apostle John's life. Um, and it's his own testimony uh, concerning, concerning Christ. And so all the Gospels, uh, as we'll see in a moment, um, have this same core message, though they're written from different authors. God uses human authors to, to reveal his divine word to us. And in that, we get a little bit of a different angle concerning uh, the teaching and ministry of Jesus from each of the Gospel writers, but all with the same core message. And all with the, the value and the beauty of being able to compare and read across the Gospels uh, to understand the uniquenesses and the complexity and the richness of what took place. Um, and it gives us great confidence that what we have in the Scriptures is indeed the true testimony concerning Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, and so uh, Mark writes in the mid-50s to early 60s, and most likely he writes probably his first audience in mind is, is the, the believers in Rome. Uh, it's very general in its nature, almost universal in its nature. It certainly appeals to the Jewish background person uh, because he helps us to understand how Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. You don't talk as much about the Old Testament as Mark does unless you know there are some people who know something about the Old Testament. And yet, at the same time, it's clear that Mark is writing for people who may not be familiar with certain uh, uh, Jewish customs or phrases. And, and we don't have time to look at this, but in Mark 7 is a good chapter. Three different times, verse 11, verse 19, and verse 34, Mark has a little aside uh, translating a phrase uh, or explaining something that would have been necessary for a Gentile audience uh, to, to understand. And so, uh, and then the climax of the Gospel of Mark in many ways is the Roman centurion at the cross as Jesus is crucified. Uh, one of the very people responsible, for, humanly speaking, for putting him on the cross stands at the foot of cross and says, truly, he must be the Son of God. Um, and so we see this climactic expression from a Roman centurion uh, indicating perhaps who the first group of believers to receive the gospel uh, was. And so uh, and then to the, the kind of spell out more explicitly the purpose, uh, just by way of introduction, because I think this is helpful, um, and I've kind of touched on some of these. Uh, but the Gospel of Mark is written, I think, to believers early on. If indeed it is Rome that is the like, first intended audience uh, for the Gospel of Mark, 
certainly it's intended to be circulated and passed around and universal. But think about these believers who had been following Christ perhaps for some time who are at this point under Nero. Nero's probably lost his mind by this point. Uh, and as Rome burns and he blames the Christians and then you begin to see intense persecution from the time of the 60s all the way through 90 uh, AD under um, Vespasian and Diocletian, these Roman emperors, we see the most intense persecution of Christians. What you think of in the uh, in the Colosseum of Christians being thrown to the lions, that happens uh, a little bit later in the first century. But under Nero, it really begins where Christians are intensely persecuted uh, in Rome. And these believers, battered by this persecution and by this pressure to cave, Uh, to their confession of Jesus as Lord, we see this pastoral purpose to teach Christians about the nature of discipleship. Jesus has a lot to say about suffering uh, in the latter half of the Gospel of Mark because it was very relevant and particular to, to believers then as it is today. But we also see that the Gospel of Mark isn't just written to like um, you know, sit around and uh, bemuse uh, certain thoughts about Jesus, but it's some, somewhat of a missionary training purpose in that it explains how uh, Jesus prepared his first disciples to, to take on his mission as well as how we can join God in his mission. And then we see an apologetic purpose. It's to demonstrate to those who didn't believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God who died and rose from the dead. Uh, the vast, uh, proportionally, the largest section of the scripture uh, of the Gospel of Mark focuses in on Jesus's pursuit or Jesus's journey to the cross, uh, his betrayal, uh, the the trial, uh, his going to the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. It is the central part uh, of the gospel. And then there's also kind of this underlying tone here of a an anti-imperial or or posing um, a challenge to the thought that Caesar is Lord. Uh, When when Julius uh, Augustus, when Caesar was born, the proclamation went out of good news of salvation, that Caesar uh, was born and that basically there was this sense of almost divine status given uh, to Caesar in Rome. And in the Gospel of Mark, time uh, and time again, we see that Jesus is the true Son of God, the true Savior of the world, the true Lord of all, not Caesar. Um, and I think this isn't like the main thing that Mark is saying, but I think it's a, a helpful thing to see uh, this statement that when we say Jesus is Lord, when we say he is the, the Son of God and the Son of Man who not only has come to provide, provide salvation, but you want to get people upset is when Jesus starts talking about how he's going to come again and all kings are going to bow down before him. There are literally countries in which the state-sponsored church is not allowed to teach about the second coming of Christ. Because in the second coming of Christ, it says that all kingdoms and all nations will be subject to the one true king. Uh, And that was true in Rome, and it's true today, uh, that it's a subversive message that Jesus is Lord. And if it's subversive to the kings of the world... It also should be subversive to every single one of us because it tells us that not only is Caesar not Lord, but we aren't Lord. That Jesus is Lord of all, including our lives. And I mentioned this earlier, but uh, the Gospel of Mark, I think, answers these two questions as its primary focus. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow Jesus? We'll get there eventually, but in Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30, we have the climax, I think, of the gospel. You might be familiar with that passage. It's the passage where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they throw out some, who do the people say that I am? And they throw out some answers, but then he turns it directly to them. But he says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah. Gospel of Mark tells us, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this, this statement of the identity of Jesus is, is the, the climax of the book and really sums up the whole pattern of the first half of the book to this point. And then after that point, Jesus begins to give um, basically foretelling his, uh, his betrayal, his death and his resurrection. Three times Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. And after each of those predictions, he gives a lesson on discipleship. You want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. He he says he's going to die. He says you want to know about greatness in the kingdom of God? Those who are first will be last, but those who are are last will be first. 
Uh, he, he unpacks for us what it means uh, to follow him, what it means to join him in his mission. Um, and we begin to see that, that the nature of discipleship isn't merely just acknowledging Jesus' existence or his power as a teacher or a, um, this divine miracle worker, but uh, the essence of discipleship is, um, <clears throat> is trusting him for the forgiveness of sins. It's resting in him for salvation. It's taking up your cross and following him, giving your allegiance to him and him being the center of your life. And so a very um, broad outline of the gospel of Mark on the screen here, we we have the introduction, which is this uh, expression of the identity of Jesus in many ways in in verse one. Uh, But then after that point, we see the identity of Jesus revealed in Mark one through chapter eight, verse 30. And then following that, we see the mission of Jesus defined from Mark 8, 31 through chapter 16, verse 8. And then we have this postscript um, at the very end, which we'll look at uh, when we get to that point uh, of the end of the gospel in, in Mark 16, 9 through 20. So that's 30,000 foot view of the book. Now let's jump into verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> I want us to see two things, the beginning of the gospel and the ministry of John the Baptist. As I mentioned earlier, Mark, like the other gospel writers, they all have the same, um, the same purpose here of, of recording the life and teaching of Jesus, but they all do so from a little bit of a different angle. Uh, but if Mark is indeed the first gospel, it's somewhat uh, you know, of a, a radical thing. There's no gospel account before this point. Um, and so what Mark writes is something totally new uh, for, for people. Um, and of course, it's, it's new uh, in terms of the genre, if you will, that there's never been a gospel account before, but it's, it's actually just following from Jesus' own teaching uh, as he talks about uh, the gospel. Mark, is uh, its uniqueness is that it's the shortest, and it's in many ways the most action-packed. It's defined by the use of the word immediately, which is used 41 times. Uh, in the book, um, and uh, which uh, by far and away uh, is more than any other, any other gospel account. Uh, it focuses less on the teaching of Jesus than, say, the gospel of Matthew, which has five blocks of Jesus' teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest section of the teaching of Jesus. All we get in Mark is the parables in chapter 4, basically. Um, instead, it focuses a lot on the ministry that he did, on his healing, on, uh, on, the, uh, on the, the acts of, uh, of calming the storm and uh, of raising the dead, healing the sick, and particularly uh, turns a great portion of its attention to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his ultimate uh, crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It's not... When you think about the gospel accounts, don't think of them merely as biographies. They, they are not uh, indifferent biographies just seeking to inform us about a particular person. They are biographical in nature, but even Mark doesn't give us anything about the birth of Jesus. Um, uh, unlike Luke and, and Matthew, which we have uh, the accounts of the birth of Jesus, instead he begins with his ministry. Uh, at the baptism of John and uh, then into his temptation, into his early preaching. We, we have about three years worth of uh, material, uh, the life of Jesus, from when he began his ministry until he was crucified that we have recorded in 16 chapters. Um, and so it's not uh, merely just kind of uh, indifferent biography, but instead it's a collection of eyewitness accounts concerning who Jesus is with the aim of helping us to come to both faith in Christ, to see him for who he is, and then to strengthen and encourage believers to follow him. That's the, the purpose of the Gospels. So we begin with Mark 1, verse 1, and we have the identity of Jesus that's made clear here. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. So we here we have this statement that this is the beginning of the Gospel. It's not, not quite the same as John 1, which says, in the beginning God created, uh, and we have this emphasis on the word, which has a direct parallel to Genesis 1-1, which also says, in the beginning God created, Um, whereas John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing came into being apart from the word, and we have this emphasis on Jesus and his divine act in creation, and, and then from that we see his act of revealing God to us in his work of redemption. Here it's not like that. As much as it's saying, this is how the gospel, this good news about Jesus begins. And Mark fronts for us this 
uh, picture of the identity of Jesus. But when we say good news, that term, though it is new, it's not unforeseen, if you will, because it's grounded in the Old Testament. Uh, And just consider Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah, in particular, is an important book in the Gospel of Mark in terms of Old Testament references that Mark will often uh, refer back to because he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the servant of the, of the I almost said the Gospel of Isaiah. It's actually uh, sometimes referred to as the fifth Gospel. It's an Old Testament book, so it's 700 years before Jesus, but when you read it, you're like, Man, Isaiah got it. Like he, he understood what God was doing and, uh, and God revealed to him um, that Jesus was indeed coming, that God was coming to rescue his people from their sin, not by setting up shop and, and defeating their enemies, but by dying a sacrificial death, by suffering as a servant and, um, <clears throat> and rising from the dead. But in Isaiah 52, verse 7, um, God gives us reference to the salvation that's to come for Israel. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. You see, when Mark references the beginning of the gospel, it's the gospel that Jesus taught about and that Jesus embodied in his life. But it ultimately is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised salvation in Isaiah. It's the fulfillment. He is the one who brings God's salvation, uh, who brings this good news of God's reign and victory that's to come. That good news uh, is uh, fulfilled uh, in Jesus. It's grounded in the scriptures and fulfilled in Jesus. But we see Jesus is the, the name uh, that, um, that is given uh, at his birth. Uh, we see that in Matthew and in Luke. But literally the name uh, Jesus uh, is, is translated from the Hebrew, uh, similar a variation of Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, and, and we see this in Matthew one twenty one when the angel uh, says to Joseph that Mary will give birth to a child and you will name him Jesus. Notice, because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus comes and we see even in his name that it indicates the arrival of God's salvation. But Christ is also uh, mentioned here. And Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Uh, Christ is a title, a royal title. Uh, that means anointed one. And, and in this uh, reference to this royal title, we have this expectation of a king who is going to come, that God is going to send a king who will establish a forever kingdom um, and, and will rule over God's people. Second Samuel 7, 11 through 16 gives us this promise that God gives David uh, that at first you're like, maybe he's talking about Solomon. Um, and there is a sense in which Solomon is the, the near fulfillment of it. But there's this further fulfillment because this offspring of David is going to have a kingdom that will never end. I don't know if you know the Old Testament history, but Solomon's kingdom ended. Um, uh, and in fact, it ended in a very inglorious way. Um, but there's this promise of a forever kingdom that's going to come in which God says he will build a house for his name and establish the throne of his kingdom, not for a season, but forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And that's the the next point that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Messiah and the Son of God. And we see this reference to the Son of God is not a reference to a biological relationship, but it speaks of a relationship of power and of authority. It speaks of the privileged role of the second person of the Godhead, who is Jesus, the Son of God. It speaks to his status and his authority. And and in fact, just like we saw in 2 Samuel 7, we also see in Psalm 2 how this expectation of a king and a son come together. The promised king, the promised Messiah, the royal king, is also the divine Son of God. It says in Psalm uh, chapter 2, if you look there, uh, kind of at the beginning, uh, almost as an introduction to, to the Psalms. It says in verse 7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, this is God speaking. He said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. He speaks of his judgment, how he will break them with his iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. And then he speaks now to the kings of the earth. Be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. It says, kiss the son. 
Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him, blessed are those who take refuge in him. The promised king is the sun. And here we see all of this coming together. We can't read it now, but go look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. A child is to be born to you. And that child in Isaiah 9, 7 is called the divine names of God. Uh, We see that there's this coming together uh, of this reference. And in in particular, the reference of the Son of God is prominent throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It's said that the identity of Jesus is, uh, is the proverbial red thread that runs throughout Mark's gospel. And here's a, just a glimpse of this. Consider who all calls Jesus the Son of God. In Mark 1, we see, according to Mark, that Jesus is the Son of God. But according to God the Father, in Mark 1, uh, verse 11, at his baptism, a voice comes from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, in Mark 9, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And after this point, after the Father references Jesus as the Son, it's really up until, uh, until really the Roman centurion, uh, it's the demons who, do, who understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Just consider some of these references. Mark 1.24, uh, when Jesus heals uh, a man, he says, What do you have to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 1.34, the demons know who Jesus is, so he commands them to be silent. Uh, and Mark 3, verse 11, when Jesus uh, heals another, they, the demon <clears throat> cry out, you are the son of God. Again, in Mark 5, 7, uh, they declare that Jesus is the son of the most high God. And then it's Jesus himself when he's on trial um, uh, declares he's asked specifically by the high priest, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And then as I've already mentioned, according to the Roman centurion in Mark 15 verse 39, as he looks upon Jesus on the cross and he cries out his last and he says it is finished. He says, truly, you are the Son of God. So all of this shows us that Jesus, here before we get into anything that the Gospel of Mark says, Mark is making clear that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Son of God the promised Messiah, the Savior who will deliver us from our sins. Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king. He is God in the flesh, the promised long-awaited king who brings salvation to God's people. Quite the introduction um, uh, to the Gospel of Mark. We see the identity of Jesus proclaimed clearly, but then we see already, um, we've already seen how these are, Titles that are grounded in the Old Testament, but he goes further and we see the fulfillment of Scripture uh, in which he's qu- he quotes Isaiah in verse 2. See, I am sending you. Uh, he references the messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Now, interestingly, um, Mark quotes Isaiah, but the reference is in many ways uh, kind of a combined reference to three different places. Exodus chapter 20, when God brings Israel uh, out of Egypt. Um, Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through 3, chapter 1 and uh, 3, chapter 3, verse 1 in particular. We see um, that Israel and its leaders rebel against God and they mock God and they say, God, where is your justice? And Malachi answers in verse 3, 1, through God, he says, behold, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. But in Malachi, it's the, it's the Lord who comes to bring judgment. Um, but, but interestingly, Mark quotes Isaiah because I think Isaiah is at the forefront of his mind because in Isaiah, God provides comfort to his people. And how does God provide comfort to his people? He provides comfort by sending this voice, this person who will be in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making straight Uh, In the desert, a highway for our God, every valley lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Mark is saying here that the coming of John the Baptist in preparation for uh, the arrival of the Lord, uh, who is ultimately Jesus, uh, is is fulfilled in the scriptures. We, We see really two things that in many ways Mark is saying here. Uh, both indirectly and directly, um, he's saying that Jesus is Lord. 
John the Baptist, secondly, is the promised messenger. How do we know? He's saying that John the Baptist comes as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what does he do? Prepare the way of the Lord. Who is the Lord that's coming? Who is it? As Isaiah 40 uh, verse 3 says, when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It's in the coming of Jesus that the Lord comes. It's in the coming of Jesus that the glory of the Lord is revealed. It's a strong statement concerning the identity of Jesus. Yes, it's true. Uh, kind of mash up all of these references. We have this picture that Jesus is providing a new exodus, if you will. Israel had come out of exodus. They went into the wilderness. They had to go through the Red Sea and they got into the promised land. But because they rebelled against God, God uh, judged them and they went into exile. And Malachi and Isaiah are saying that you went into exile as an act of God's judgment. But the day is coming when you will be delivered from exile. And that day is coming in which God provides comfort to his people. And Mark is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is the new exodus. Jesus is the one who delivers us from the bondage of our sin and gives us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he has sent, Jesus, he has sent John to prepare the way of the Lord. And John uh, is in many ways, we see this in some of the other Gospels, is this um, Elijah-like figure that was believed that at the end there would be one like, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And Jesus will later say that Elijah has come and Elijah is is John, meaning that he's this Elijah-like figure, uh, this prophet who has come to prepare the way of the Lord. And in many ways, I think John shows us um, both the faithfulness of God to his promises but also the pain of waiting. God's faithful to his promises as we see here. He's he's fulfilled them in the the coming of John and the the arrival of Jesus. But in many ways, it it mostly shows us the pain of waiting because when, when John the Baptist shows up, it's John the Baptist who breaks the silence of God for the past 400 years since the the closing of the Old Testament canon and the the prophet uh, Malachi, who is at the end uh, of the Old Testament. It's been years since God's people had heard a prophetic word from the Lord. And you can imagine in that time of waiting, there are some who have this intense longing for God. But there are others who have grown weary, maybe even indifferent, maybe even wondering if God is really going to come true on what he said. And in God's grace, he sends John ahead of Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord. And John shows up and says, wake up from your indifference. Take heart. The Messiah is coming. The Son of God is going to arrive. The Lord is coming. Are you ready for his arrival? And that takes us to the ministry of John the Baptist, which is really seen in Mark 1, 4 through 8. I was thinking about John, and he's somewhat of an eccentric character, um, if you will. In verse 6, we're told that uh, he has this prophet-like thing going on where he had a camel, camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. Um, and though that's strange, in many ways it's patterned similarly after the prophet Elijah, who had uh, some similar characteristics. It's, it's kind of uh, reflective of the prophets. They tended to be pretty weird dudes. Um, So if you're pretty weird, there's hope that God can use you, right? Um, But I I was thinking about this. and Has anybody eaten at the deli called Schlotzky's? Schlotzky's? Anybody eaten there? It started out of Atlanta. Um, We used to have one uh, where where I uh, grew up, and they're all over the place um, in various places. Um, But um, the the slogan when I first ate at Schlotzky's was, funny name, Serious sandwich. Um, apparently, they've changed their slogan. I had to look this up just to make sure they were still in business because I hadn't seen one in a while. Apparently, their slogan now is "It's a mouthful," uh, which is is true. It's sometimes hard to say, but I like their old slogan: "Funny name, serious sandwich." Um, and John's like that: funny dude, uh, weird dude, but serious message, right? Like he he has something to say that's important for us to hear. And there there are three words that sum up. John's ministry. One is repentance. In all the gospel accounts, John's ministry is described as a proclamation of the that prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, but his ministry is described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this isn't like the feel-good message, right? 
Like, John isn't going out telling people how to make friends and influence people, right? Like, like he isn't going out with a message of how to be the best version of yourself. Um, in fact, he's out in the wilderness, it tells us, um, and in verse 5, it says, <clears throat> surprisingly, out in the wilderness with this message of repentance, uh, wearing camel hair garments with leather belt around his waist, eating locust and wild honey, and it says that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So here's John declaring this message of repentance, and it's drawing people from all over to hear this simple message, repent of your sin and prepare your heart for the coming of the Lord. Repentance requires a recognition of sin and then a turning from sin. Literally, repentance means to change one's mind, to change one's direction. It's to see your sin, which is the recognition of sin, and realize it's, it's, it's not what God desires and, in fact, places you under God's judgment, and it's to turn from it. Uh, it's turning from your sin, and that repentance is uh, not stated here in this way, but it will be stated in verse 15 when Jesus preaches, repentance is always coupled with faith, because what you turn from, you must turn to something. And what we turn from is sin, and what we turn to is Christ, to believe the good news about Jesus. And John's ministry can be, I think, summarized in, in at least four ways. He preaches with humility. We see this in his lifestyle, similar, similar to the prophet Elijah, uh, which is described in verse 16, in verse 6, excuse me. We see he preaches with authority. He's been called from birth and empowered by God to be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He knows his role. He knows he's come to declare that the Lord is coming. He preaches with clarity. He doesn't hem and haw around uh, the significance of sin. In fact, he explicitly calls out sin, even to the religious leaders of the day. And it's not recorded here, but in one of the other Gospels, as, as, Mark, uh, record, as uh, John interacts with some of the religious leaders of the day, he calls them a brood of vipers and tells them to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, he, and they say to him, they say, we're children of Abraham. Who do you think you're talking to? And John says, it doesn't matter what your ethnic and national identity is. That won't get you into the kingdom of God. What gets you into the kingdom of God is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. He preaches with clarity, not mincing words or beating around the bush. He says, we're sinners who need to repent. But when we repent, you can be sure that there's a Savior who's ready to receive you. And then he preaches with urgency. He knows that he's come for a purpose and the Messiah is coming imminently. He says, I come and preach to you, but listen, there's one coming that's greater than me. I can't even stoop down to untie his sandal. And you know, I baptize you with water in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to pour out his spirit on us and give us new life and, and bring about this new covenant promise that, that I must declare to you now, get ready because the Messiah comes. He preaches with urgency. And I share this summary of how John preaches in part because this is how I desire that every time this pulpit is filled that it's preached with this type of humility, this type of authority, this type of clarity, and this type of urgency. Because it's necessary. If what Jesus has done, if who he is and what he has done is true, how can we not be humbled because we recognize but for the grace of God? we would be condemned and sin. We preach with authority, not because we figured it out, but because God has spoken. We preach with a sense of clarity because we must be clear on what is true. We preach with urgency because we know Jesus is coming again. Amen. It got me thinking as I thought about this message of urgency that John preached to the people. <clears throat> if you knew Jesus was coming in two weeks, two weeks' time, is there anything you would change in your life? I almost said if he was coming tomorrow, would you change anything? In some ways, that's a, that's a little easier. You're like, yeah, one day I'll change everything. But two weeks. If you knew he was coming in two weeks, would anything change? Would you say I need to do anything differently? John didn't know exactly when, when the Messiah was going to come, but he was pretty sure that his ministry was imminently upon the heels of his own. And so he urged people to repent and to confess their sins and to prepare their hearts for the Lord. And I believe I can say on the authority of God's word 
that while I don't know the time, the hour that Jesus is coming, I know he is coming again. And because he is coming again, just like John declared in the wilderness, we must be ready. We must be ready for his arrival. Like John's audience, we must be ready to stand and repent of our sin. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus? That's the most urgent question of the hour for all of us. Are we bearing fruit in keeping with repentance as God's children? Do we know that there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God? It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is or your uh, religious affiliation is or who your parents are or where you went to school or, or what you've done in the past. Is your hope and your trust in Jesus and Him alone? And then in that faith in Him is your life continually and progressively being changed. Are you living under the authority of His Word, seeking to walk in obedience with Him? I plead with you like John the Baptist pleaded with his audience in the countryside of Judea. Repent and believe. Prepare your heart for Christ. His message was marked by repentance, but it was also marked by baptism. We see that, his, that he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, it says in verse 5, as they were confessing their sins. This is interesting because during this time in in Judaism, there were ritual washings that would take place regularly as the people went to worship as a means of purifying themselves. And then um, when we come to John's baptism, it doesn't seem to be the same thing as that. It's not this continual washing. It seems to be kind of this defining act uh, that's done. It It was done publicly, and it was symbolic of purification of God's forgiveness. The water didn't wash away the sins, but as verse 5 says, they were baptized and they were confessing their sins. It was their their confession to God that brought about their forgiveness of sins. And in many ways, the word baptize, which means to to dip, it's this picture of immersion, really has to do with identification, typically is what we see um, in the scriptures. It's this means of identifying um, with the coming of the Messiah. Just like we'll see next week, Jesus is baptized, not because he needed to confess his sins and to be forgiven, but because he had come to save people from their sins. And so he identified with them through baptism. And, uh, and so we see John's baptism is different from those ritual washings. Instead, it's this new beginning uh, that's more than maintenance of ritual purity. And, and John's baptism really is in many ways a precursor to believer's baptism which is what we practice here at TCC that can be defined in these ways. The believer's baptism is a public profession that's preceded. It comes after uh, the confession of sin and faith in Christ because uh, baptism, the immersion in the water, is a symbolic picture of a spiritual reality of what God has done to us when we put our trust in him. He's given us new life. We've died uh, with Christ to our sin, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life not only brings about a personal dynamic of our relationship with God, but also incorporates us into the body of Christ. You can mark Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We see that the picture of circumcision isn't, it's not, circumcision in the Old Testament isn't equivalent to baptism in the New Testament. Instead, circumcision in the Old Testament is equivalent to what God does to our hearts when we trust in him that he gives us new hearts, and then that uh, is followed by baptism, which is this picture of what Christ has done for us. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, upon reading reading the book of Isaiah, and Philip explains to him how all of it's come to be fulfilled in Christ. After believing, the eunuch looks at Philip and says, Here is water. What keeps me from being baptized? That question that Philip asked the eunuch is a question for all of us to consider. What keeps you from being baptized if you haven't yet been baptized as a follower of Christ? John, John's ministry is characterized by repentance and baptism and then finally Jesus. So his whole message was focused on Jesus. He says in verses 7 through 8 that he is more powerful than I. That I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his strap. That I baptize with water but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We see the power of Jesus, that God will accomplish his plan of redemption in Jesus. We see the the glory of Jesus, that he's worthy of all praise and glory. And then we see the outworking of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which comes about through the ministry of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of the new covenant, that the Spirit is poured out and that we receive forgiveness of sins. 
And it's interesting that, that, that John mentions the Spirit here because John and the Spirit share these two things in common. And in John chapter 16, uh, we see the ministry uh, of the Spirit described in verses 4 through 15. Um, and I can't read the, the whole thing, but I'll just state this in verse 13. It says, When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare it to you, the things that are to come. Here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit glorifies me, Jesus, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I have said He will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, John and the Holy Spirit have this in common. They both seek to glorify Jesus. And John chapter 3, verse 30, John sums up his own ministry in this way. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. What a statement. I must decrease. He must increase. And in fact, John's proclamation concerning Jesus shows us the kind of response we should give Jesus. We should respond to Jesus with humility, believing that he's greater than us. Life isn't about us. It's about him, right? We should respond in worship because he is worthy of all praise and glory. And we should respond with anticipation, believing that God is working in the working out of his spirit and the, uh, the work that he does uh, through the spirit. And that we should say to God, have your way in me. In many ways, at, we, at the introduction of the Gospel of Mark, it begins with this proclamation concerning the identity of Jesus. And then in the ministry of John the Baptist, we have this conclusion that we, we should respond to Jesus with humility, with worship, and anticipation. <clears throat> and as we prepare to respond now to the Lord, I want you to think about how you can respond in this way. As Rebecca comes, we're going to sing the song, <clears throat> I Surrender All. And as I was thinking about the conclusion of John's ministry there in verses 7 through 8, this sense of humility and worship and anticipation, I couldn't help but think of the words of the song we're about to sing. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worthy of worship, in which we respond to in humility. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. There's this sense of surrender and anticipation of what God will do. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with your love and your power. Let your blessing fall on me. The posture of the believer in response to Jesus is surrender. It's to say, have your way in me. Humble worship and eager expectation of what he desires to do through us. I can only imagine what it was like for those first believers in Rome to hear the gospel for the first time. But I bet when they heard it, their response was similar to what this song declares. Lord, I surrender. We've not only believed in you, Jesus, but we want to follow you with all of our lives. And that's the journey the gospel of Mark invites us to go on. It invites you to go on, not just an intellectual journey, but one of surrendering to him. And so I invite you as we sing this song, if you haven't surrendered to him as, as Lord and Savior, do it today. Don't delay. And if you have, maybe reevaluate your heart before him today and say, if he were coming tomorrow, if he were coming in two weeks, listen, we don't know when he's coming, but we know he's coming. Are we following him now with an urgency, with an eagerness, with an anticipation of what he wants to do through us? Let's pray.